Welcome back to Psychic Prime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and I thank you so much for listening. Like always, I appreciate your support. Now, um, especially those of you who are listening um, other places outside the U.S., I never imagined that people would listen to me in other countries. I say this all the time. I thought maybe a couple of my family members would listen. I'd put up like two or three episodes and that would be it. Um, I never imagined it would go on this long. Thank you so much. Um, Things have been a little uh, crazy lately. Um, I am working on a second podcast. Um, September, um, I'm going to roll out a new Patreon and we are going to roll, I'm going to roll out the second podcast and that structure of the podcast is going to be a little different than this one um that one is going to be um available all at once um so the setup will be that the for free it'll still be available for free on um all the same channels and all the same ways that you listen to this podcast um once a um, week a new episode will be released um for free And then um, you can, if you would like to download them all at once, they'll be available um, for a price. So um, that will be the difference in kind of the way that one works. Um, That one will be American Policing, uh, Notes on a Scandal. Um, And that one is going to look into the history of a different police department or a different law enforcement agency each season. So there are only going to be between 10 and 13 episodes and then it'll be a different season. So the first season that will begin in September will be LAPD. Um, And so, like I said, I'm going to be changing the Patreon and I'm going to be um, rolling both of those changes out, the new Patreon and the new podcast. So things have been, um, a little hectic. Um, but once again, I want to thank you guys for listening. I really love and appreciate your support. Uh, rate us, um, on any of the platforms that ask you to rate us. That gives us a chance to get into those recommended lists, um, that really, um, gets us out there and, uh, lets up people know. Um, and, So we're going to dive in. This week we are looking at female family annihilators. Now our very, very first episode was about family annihilators. Now family annihilators are supposed to be uh, something that's a fairly rare occurrence. As I explained in the first episode, all of the research um, about family annihilators refer to them as male um, because female annihilators are supposed to be so incredibly rare. Uh, They've become much more common recently. Now, statistically, they show that 40% of family annihilators are women. But in doing research, people still question if female family annihilators can be family annihilators because so many of them have mental health issues that the psychosis that leads to their crimes are symptoms of. So when we look at family annihilators, between 1900 and 2000, there were 909 victims of mass murder in the United States, which is defined as four victims or more within a 24 hour period. 
Of those, more than half occurred within an immediate family. Although the familicide cases are relatively rare, they are the most common form of mass killings. However, statistical data are difficult to establish because there are many reporting discrepancies. Familicide differs from other forms of mass murder in that murderers kill family members only um, rather than anonymous people. This is a different psychodynamic and psychiatric significance, but the distinction isn't always made. A study of 30 cases in Ohio found that most of the killings were motivated by a parent's desire to stop their child's suffering. According to ABC News contributor and former FBI agent Brad Garrett, people responsible for killing their families tend to be white males in their 30s. Many of these crimes occur in or around August before school starts, which may delay detection and investigation of the crimes. In Australia, a study was done of seven cases of familicide, followed by suicide, in which marital separation, followed by custody and access disputes, were identified as an issue. Some common factors, such as marital discord, unhappiness, domestic violence, sexual disputes, sexual abuses, excuse me, threats of harm to self or others, were found in varying degrees. Literature review done in 2018 noticed contextual and offense characteristics of familial side. Among the 63 articles reviewed, 74% to 85% noted relationship problems or separation. This article also found evidence of financial problems, intoxication, and use in firearms. This literature review unveiled that 71% of these problems were motivated in regard to conflict between parents and 29% associated to the perpetrator's situation in life. Lastly, this article reported two studies, one of which found that many of the motives involved feelings of abandonment, psychosis, and narcissistic rage. The other study found that 60% of the perpetrators were suicidal and 40% were homicidal. The internal logic for family annihilation can stem from a number of various sources. David Wilson of Birmingham City University has divided these cases into four groups, anomic, disappointed, self-righteous, and paranoid. In this typology, the anomic killer sees his family purely as a status symbol. When his economic status collapses, he sees them as surplus to the requirement. The disappointed killer seeks to punish the family for not living up to their ideals. The self-righteous killer destroys the family to exact revenge upon the mother in an act that he blames on her. And then finally, the paranoid killer kills their family in what they imagine to be an attempt to protect them from something even worse. Now, in the 90s, there was a rash of female familicide offenders who were later diagnosed with postpartum depression or other mental illnesses that further clouded the issue. Can they be categorized as annihilators if the mental illnesses have symptoms that are responsible for their crimes? That's the question. Susan Lee Smith, born September 26, 1971, rarely had a stable home life growing up. Her father died by suicide when she was six years old, and Smith herself attempted suicide at age 13. Her mother then married Beverly Russell, 
a member of the local chapter of Christian Coalition, who later was revealed to have molested Smith when she was a teenager. One newspaper claimed that sexual relations between them had continued until six months before the murders. After graduating from high school in 1989, Smith made a second attempt to kill herself after a married man ended the affair they had. She married David Smith and they had two sons. The relationship was rocky due to mutual allegations of infidelity and they separated several times. On October 25, 1994, Smith reported to police that her vehicle had been carjacked by a black man who drove away with her son still inside. This never goes well. Never, never, never. Never when a random black man supposedly commits a carjacking does it go well. The composite sketch of the alleged carjacker, however, was too generic. Of course, because he didn't exist. In the sense, <laughs> sorry, in the sense that it described half of the African-American men who lived in the community, like I said, didn't exist. For nine days, she made dramatic pleas on national television for the boy's safe return. I remember this and it was awful. The lady was just crying and she was like, please, please return my sense to me. Please, that's all I ask. However, following an intensive investigation and nationwide search for her children, she confessed on November 3rd, 1994 to letting her car roll into nearby John D. Long Lake, drowning them inside. Her motivation was reportedly to facilitate a relationship with a local wealthy man by the name of Tom Findlay. Prior to the murders, he sent Susan a letter ending their relationship and expressing that he did not want children. She said that there was no motive, nor did she plan the murders, stating that she was not right in her mind. Later investigation revealed that detectives doubted Smith's story from the start and believed that she had murdered her sons. By the second day of investigation, the police suspected that she knew their location and hoped that, that they were alive. Investigators started to search the nearby lakes and ponds, including John D. Long Lake, where their bodies eventually were found. Initial water searches did not locate the car because the police believed it would be within 30 feet of the shore and did not search further. It turned out to be 122 feet from the shore. After the boys had been missing for two days, Smith and her estranged husband, David, were subject to polygraph tests. The biggest breakthrough of the case was the description of the carjacking location. She had claimed that a traffic light had turned red, causing her to stop at an otherwise empty intersection. However, it was determined that the light would not have turned red for her unless the vehicle was present on an intersecting road. This conflicted with her statement that she did not see any other cars when the carjacking took place. Smith's defense psychiatrist diagnosed her with dependent personality disorder and major depression. So here they're saying that she has a personality disorder and that combined with major depression is going to, so a dependent personality disorder is you are going to do anything that you think is going to please a person. 
even up to killing your children because a person does not want children. So they're saying, would she be a family annihilator if she did not have this dependent personality disorder in which she is so desperate to please people that she will do heinous things that a rational person wouldn't do. So that brings the idea of her being a family annihilator into question. So next we have Andrea Yates. Yates completed a... Oops, sorry, jumped ahead just a little. Andrea Yates was born in Hallsville, Texas, youngest of five children of Karen Kohler, a German immigrant, and Andrew Emmett Kennedy, whose parents were Irish immigrants. She suffered from bulimia during her teenage years. She also suffered from depression, and at 17, she spoke to a friend about suicide. So already there are parallels between the two. They both were suicidal as teenagers, so already there are parallels. She graduated from Milby High School in 1982. She was class valedictorian, captain of the swim team, and an officer in the National Honor Society. Yates completed a two-year pre-nursing program at the University of Houston and graduated from the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. From 1986 to 1994, she worked as a registered nurse at the University of Texas Anderson Cancer Center. In summer of 1989, she met Rusty Yates at the Sunscape Apartments in Houston. They soon moved in together and were married on April 17, 1993. They announced that they would seek to have as many babies as nature would allow and wow, and bought a four-bedroom house in Friendswood, Texas. Their first child, Noah, was born in February 1994, just before Rusty accepted a job offer in Florida. So they relocated to a small trailer in Seminole. By the time of the birth of their third child, Paul, they moved back to Houston and purchased a GMC motorhome. Following the birth of their fourth child, Luke, Gates became depressed. On June 16, 1994, Rusty found her shaking and chewing her fingers. The next day, she attempted to commit suicide by overdosing on pills. She was admitted to the hospital and prescribed antidepressants. Soon after her release, she begged Rusty to let her die as she held a knife to her neck. Once again hospitalized, she was given a cocktail of medication, including Haldol, an antipsychotic. Her condition approved immediately, and she was prescribed it upon her release. After that, Rusty moved the family to a small house for the sake of her health. She appeared stabilized. In 1999, Yates suffered a breakdown, which culminated in two suicide attempts and two psychiatric hospitalizations that summer. She was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. Yates' first psychiatrist, Dr. Eileen Starbranch, testified that she urged her and Rusty not to have any more children as it would guarantee future psychotic depression. They conceived their fifth and final child seven weeks after she was discharged. I just... just... She has had three, three, three suicide attempts since their first child. She's been hospitalized three times and 
they were like, no more kids. And he's like, let's have more babies. Like, I feel like any good partner, any caring human being would be like, let's take a breather so you can recover and so that, you know, I, I, I just, I feel like that would be their first thought. Not like, can I get another baby out of you? Like, wow. She stopped taking her Haldol in March of 2000 and gave birth to her daughter, Mary, in November 30th, on November 30th of 2000. She seemed to be coping well until the death of her daughter on March 12th of 2001. Yates then stopped taking all medication, started to self-harm, and read the Bible feverishly. She stopped feeding Mary. She became so incapacitated that she required hospitalization again on April 1st, April 1st 2001. She came under the care of Dr. Muhammad Saeed. She was treated and released on May 3rd, 2001. She degenerated back into a near catatonic state and filled the bathtub in the middle of the day. She would later confess to police that she had planned to drown the children that day, but had decided against it. She was hospitalized the next day after a scheduled doctor visit. Her psychiatrist determined she was suicidal and that she had probably filled the tub to drown herself. At the time of the murders, the Yates family was living in the Houston suburb of Clear Lake City. She continued under Dr. Saeed's care until June 20th, 2001, when Russie left for work, leaving her alone to watch the children again under, under Dr. Saeed's, under Dr. against Dr. Saeed's instructions. Dr. Saeed said that she should be supervised around the clock. His mother, Dora Yates, had been scheduled by him to arrive an hour later to take over. In the space of that hour, she drowned all five of the children. She started with John, then Paul, and Luke, and then laid them in her bed. She then drowned Mary and left her floating in the tub. Noah came in and asked what was wrong with Mary. He then ran, but she caught him and drowned him as well. She left him floating in the tub and laid Mary in John's arms on the bed. She then called the police repeatedly saying she was an, she needed an officer, but would not say why. She called Rusty, telling him to come home right away. Yates confessed to drowning her children. Prior to her second trial, she told Michael Wellner that she waited for Rusty to leave for work that morning before filling the bathtub because she knew he would have prevented her from harming them. After the murders, the police found the family dog locked up. Rusty advised Wellner that it had been normal that he had normally been allowed to run free. So that was must have happened when he left the house that morning. 
leading the psychiatrist to allege that she had locked it in a cage to prevent it from interfering with her killing the children one by one. Rusty got a family friend, George, to act as her attorney. Although the defense's expert testimony agreed that Yates was psychotic, Texas law requires that in order to successfully assert the insanity defense, the defendant must prove that he or she could not discern right from wrong at the time of the crime. In March 2002, a jury rejected the insanity defense and found her guilty. Although the prosecution had sought the death penalty, the jury refused that option. The trial court sentenced her to life imprisonment in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice with eligibility for parole in 40 years. In January 6, 2005, a Texas Court of Appeals reversed the conviction because California psychiatrist and prosecution witness Dr. Park Dietz admitted he had given materially false testimony during the trial. In his testimony, Dietz had stated that shortly before the murders, an episode of Law and Order had aired featuring a woman who had drowned her children and was acquitted of murder by reason of insanity. Author and later Yale University lecturer Susan O'Malley was covering the trial for Oprah Magazine, The New York Times, and NBC News. She had previously been a writer for Law and & Order and immediately reported that no such episode existed. Two years later, in 2004, Law & Order Criminal Intent did an episode called The Magnificent based in part on Yates' case. The appellate court held unanimously that the jury might have been influenced by Dietz's false testimony and therefore a new trial was necessary. On January 9th, 2006, Yates again entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. And on February 1st, 2006, she was granted release on bail on the condition she was admitted to a mental health facility. On July 26, 2006, after three days of deliberation, Yates was found not guilty by reason of insanity as defined by the state of Texas. She was thereafter committed to the North Texas State Hospital on the Vernon campus. And in January 2007, she was moved to Caraville State Hospital, a low security mental facility in Caraville, Texas. Although psychiatrists for both Texas's state prosecutors and her defense lawyers agree that she was severely mentally ill with one of the several psychotic diseases at the time she killed her children, the state of Texas asserts that she was by legal definition aware enough to judge her actions as right or wrong despite her deficit. The prosecution further implied her spousal revenge as a motive for the killings. Despite the conclusion of defense experts that there was no evidence to support such a motive. Although the original jury believed she was legally aware of her actions, they disagreed that there was a motive. According to trial testimony in 2006, Dr. Saeed advised Rusty, a former NASA engineer, not to leave Yates unattended. However, he began leaving her alone with the children in the weeks leading up to the drownings for short periods of time, apparently to improve her independence. He had announced to a family announced at a family gathering before the drownings that he had decided to leave her home alone for an hour each morning and each evening so that she would not become dependent on him and his mother 
wow, for her maternal responsibilities. Yates' brother Brian told Larry King on a broadcast of the Larry King live show that Rusty expressed to him in 2001 while transporting her to the treatment facility that all depressed people needed was a swift kick in the ass to get them motivated. Wow. Her mother, Judy Kennedy, expressed shock when she heard of Rusty's plan while at the gathering, saying Yates wasn't stable enough to care for the children. She noted that Yates demonstrated that she wasn't in her right mind when she nearly choked Mary while trying to feed her solid food. According to author Susie Spencer and Susan O'Malley, who investigated her story in great detail, is during a phone call Dr. Saeed made to Rusty during the breaking news of the killings that Saeed first learned that she was not being supervised full time. Yates' first psychiatrist, Dr. Eileen Starbrand, said she was shocked when, during the first office visit with the couple, they expressed a desire to discontinue medication so she can get pregnant again. She warned and counseled them against more children and noted in the medical record, apparently patient and husband plan to have as many babies as nature will allow. This will surely guarantee future psychotic depression. Nevertheless, Yates became pregnant with a fifth child, Mary, only seven weeks after being discharged from Star Branch's care. Rusty stated to the media he was never told by a psychiatrist that his wife was psychotic, nor that she could harm the children, and that had he known otherwise, he never would have had more children. If I had known she was psychotic, we never would have considered having more kids, he told the Dallas Observer. However, she revealed to her prison psychiatrist, Dr. Melissa Ferguson, that prior to their last child, she had told Rusty that she did not want to have sex because Dr. Starbrandt said that she might hurt her children. Rusty, she said, simply asserted his procreative religious beliefs, complimented her as a good mother, and persuaded her that she could absolutely handle more children. O'Malley highlighted Rusty's continued sense of unreality regarding having more children. During the trial, he successfully maintained the position that Yates would be found innocent. He had fantasies of having even more children with her after she was successfully treated and released on medication. He worked his way through various fixes for their damaged lives, such as a surrogate and adoption. <laughs> which horrified families and attorneys and psychiatrists before giving into reality. Rusty contended that as, that as a psychiatrist, Dr. Saeed was responsible for recognizing and properly treating Yates' psychosis, not a medically untrained person like himself, which he did having put her on medication, which you convinced her to stop taking so she could have more babies. So that doesn't hold up either. Yates claimed that despite his urging to check her medical records for prior treatment, Dr. Saeed had refused to continue her regimen of antipsychotic Haldol, the treatment that had worked for her during her first breakdown. The real question here is how could she have been so ill, the medical community not diagnosed her, not treated her, obviously not protected our family from her, Rusty testified he never knew she had visions or heard voices. He said he never knew she considered killing their children. Well, neither did Dr. Saeed, even though delusions could have been found in medical records from 1999. 
So Rusty's just going on and on about like, how did nobody know? Well, they did know. And they did say, she hears voices. She has, that's what psychosis is, which is why they said, hey, she has psychosis. If you have more kids, she's going to have more psychosis. And psychosis can go to really bad places. Stop having children. Stop taking her off her medicine. So basically he's saying, why did nobody tell me, you know, why they did? Just because they didn't say vision or hearing things, psychosis. That's what psychosis does. That's what it is. They did tell you, you just didn't want to listen. So because you didn't want to listen, you know, that's you're deflecting it back onto other people. He added that his wife was too sick to be discharged from her last day in the hospital in May 2001. He said he, <laughs> sorry, this is, this is great. Said he noticed the staff lower their heads in shame and embarrassment turning away without saying a word. The hospital had no choice. They had no choice. The insurance, it would only allow for a 10 day psychiatric stay. Blue Cross and Blue Shield, for shame, for shame. No, I'm sorry, just, that is no. I'm sorry, working in, I've worked in an industry where we had to bill people and it sucks, we don't like it, but no, as you walk out the door, we don't hang our heads in shame and, and have an inability to look you in the eye because most people know what their insurance situation is when they come in. And so whether they like it or not, you know, it is what it is. And, and it isn't our shame. We're not ashamed because we didn't make the rules. It's, it's no, yeah, that wouldn't happen. It's a nice try, but no. <laughs> On July 26, 2006, a Texas jury in her retrial found that Yates was not guilty by reason of insanity. She's consequently committed by the court to the North Texas State Hospital on the Vernon campus, a high security mental health facility in Vernon where she received medical treatment and was roommate of Dina Schlosser, another woman who committed infanticide by killing her infant daughter in January of 2007 though. Andrea was moved to low security state mental hospital in Caraville at the Caraville State Hospital. So both these women the question is, had Andrea not been pressured by her husband to have children while she was mentally ill, would she be family annihilator? If she had been properly treated for her mental illness, would she be a family annihilator? So, at least in these two cases, it's questionable whether you can call them family annihilators. That's part of the, the issue in why not as many women are listed as family annihilators. There are ongoing studies into female family annihilators. Um, I guess they want to up those numbers, <laughs> get, get those numbers up. Um, so I hope that uh, you will join us again in two weeks. We're going to look into the case of a young man in Texas who was falsely convicted of child um molestation and what makes this so interesting it is a bit of a sequel to another uh podcast i did blood in the kool-aid which was a satanic panic case the reason it is is because it happened in the same town and it was under the same 
exact district attorney. Yes, she strikes again with the false child abuse convictions. So, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>